what we did last night was describe or begin to describe my very personal search all of the what I'm showing you is what I went through myself and I realized right in the beginning when I was doing it or somewhere in between that unless you become an honest inquirer you will you will pull all the evidence to your own side so if you are an unbeliever you'll pull all the evidence to your side and if you're a believer you'll pull all the evidence to your side and that wouldn't really it didn't satisfy me because I like last night I said I we should not want to just win the argument it is useless to win an argument on the wrong side so you might feel very good about winning the argument hey but what have you done you haven't pushed humanity even one inch forward you have pulled us back it is much better to lose an argument than to win it on the wrong side so we stood right in the middle of this big question is there a God in evidence and we said there is there is not and we said the best way to really come to the truth of the matter is to fight for both of them and then fight against both of them and then see where the chips fall that's what we did last night in what we call the pan process pan we said was going across pan american airlines going across america it was also panning sifting for gold you differentiate or you or you separate the mundane from the valuable uh, like the 49ers did at Sutter's Mill, Span for gold. Pan also happened to be the first three letters of my family name. <laughs> so, Pan process. The Pan process says that you have four columns of argument. If there are two options, for and against A, for and against B, four columns of argument. And when you do that, honestly, put the arguments down and fight for both sides fight against both sides you will come to a place where you will see the weight of evidence and that's all human beings can ever have you cannot have proof or the truth of the matter you can only have weight of evidence that's called the historical legal method the weight of evidence that's the whole basis of jurisprudence the world over the weight of evidence nobody was there when the guy actually murdered but the weight of evidence points this way or that way that's the meaning of the weight of evidence and we take major decisions by weight of evidence all of us do so let's not ask for the ideal because you will never have the ideal why because our brains are just too small we do, we, if we had all the facts, we would have made an assessment. We don't. We never will. Nobody will have the weight of the, the whole gamut of all the information. So we will go by the weight of evidence. When we did that, it was very clear that beyond the natural, there had to be something known as a supernatural. There had to be. Once we got that, then the question I asked this morning uh, at the other venue was did that individual or person break through the barrier of natural and supernatural and communicate anything to us did he and there are claims that he did 
So did he just speak, loudspeaker or some burning bush or just a little soft voice here? No, wrote it down. And there are people who say, yes, we've got it here, we've got it here. And we looked at a few of them this morning. The Buddhist scriptures, the Hindu scriptures, the uh, Islamic scriptures, Judaic scriptures and the Christian scriptures. Remember, all of those are called scriptures. I've heard many among our little circle, when they use the word scriptures, they mean only this. No, sir. The word scriptures does not refer to only the Bible. The word scriptures refers to anything that we claim has come from the other side of the, uh, of the boundary. Word of God, same thing. So, when we decide that this piece of literature, known as the New Testament, has characteristics that place it in the level of historical uh, uh, report, that doesn't mean you swallow it all. It just means that you cannot treat it like a mythological or legendary story. In other words, if you read something there that is unbelievable, you just toss it off, saying that it's a mythological story anyway. That's what you would do for a mythological story. If you see something unbelievable, oh, they just, it's a mythological, so throw it away. You can't do it for this, because this is historical. So here, even if you do not agree to some of what is there, what you have to do is treat it like a document. And if you do not agree to the document, then you must give you a good reason for disagreeing. That's how you deal with the historical, legal form of evidence. With that in mind, let's go to what we're going to do now. We said the literature is historical. Not only is it historical, it is just about the only established historical piece of literature in the world. Can you imagine that? This thing that you have in your hand, we treat it so mundanely. It's an absolutely unique piece of literature, 3,500 years old, 2,000 years old. Just because you have it in your hands doesn't mean it's lost any of its value. It is extremely, extremely valuable. If you went around hunting around and found this one and said, hey, 2,000 year old man, you'll have the whole world at your feet. Hey, can I have a look at it? Can I read it? Can I? But we just toss it on the side and say, hey, I'll read it when I have time. Is it, it is not only historical, it's also the only piece of literature that says, I am saying the truth, here is how you can test me out. No other literature in the world had the guts to tell the human race, you can test me out. That's the literature. Now we turn to the founder. The flesh and blood founder. That's the one for this evening, afternoon. We'll do in two sessions and we'll take a little break so that we don't all fall asleep. Take a break and then we'll come back. Um, it's okay to fall asleep because, you know, post-lunch and we don't have all the jokes in the world right now. So we'll take a break. Once in a while, if I say I'm going to have a break, then perk up. It's a break. Let's get to this. 
When I came to the founders, I had to make a, a premise, foundation. I'm going to look for only the flesh and blood founders. So the mythological ones are out, really, the, the, the real big heroes. It has to be the flesh and blood founders. Number two, I don't have any way of controverting the claims of a founder. I have no way. I cannot look at a founder and say, you said it wrong. So what I said, or decided was, I will ask my question and just take all of their answers, face value, and simply put it on the table and see what happens. All right? So last night we said we were all inquirers. Are, are we still inquirers? Okay, an inquirer is not one who takes sides. An inquirer is one who looks for pieces of information just because he wants to build up the data bank. That's an inquirer. So let's do this. The first question I asked is, Sir Founders, all of you are great. Can I know what is the highest claim you make for yourself? Do you know why I asked that? Because I was serious about my destiny. If you were, if you were going to say that, uh, say in a, a weightlifting competition, I wanted to become also a top-notch weightlifter. And I came to you and said, um, you're in this competition, what do you think is your position here? Well, about 211th. Okay, good. <laughs> How about you, sir? I am champion. Nobody will beat me. Who do you think I'll go to? I want to be champion. I want to be sure. I want to be sure about getting to wherever the destination is. Can you see why I was asking this question? Give me your highest claim. Because if you're just a mundane claim, you can sit on this side. If you've got a top claim, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow you. So, and I have no way of dismissing their claims. I'm just going to ask you what's your claim. Here it is. The highest claim that the Hindus made, and the founder is not Vishwamitra, I just mentioned that as, a, as an example of a, an author. Vishwamitra is one of the authors of uh, the religious writing of the Hindus. The highest claim they made, almost all the authors made, was a sage. A sage is a person who is very revered in society. Tremendous uh, piety, tremendous uh, personality, poise, uh, truthfulness, and a great, um, a great grasp of the religious material in that community. That's a sage. Buddhism, Gautama Buddha, the founder of Buddhism said that he was the enlightened one. Islam, Muhammad said he was the seal of the prophets. The Islamic tradition said that Allah sent down 124,000 prophets at some time during the earth's history. 25 of them are recorded by name in the Quran, starting with Adam. There's Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, the twelve patriarchs, John, Jesus, so many of them. All right? But the seal of them is Muhammad. The seal means that which sets the final tone of the truth of the matter. So, 
He said that he was the seal of the prophets. When it came to Judaism, Moses said he was the prophet and the lawgiver. Came to Christianity, he said he was the son of God. One look at that, if you, if you are an inquirer, so nobody in this room is a Christian, okay? Nobody is. So behave like an inquirer. If you're an inquirer and you told yourself that you're going to look for the highest claim, you can't controvert their claims, you're just going to look at them, then can you see the highest claim? The line has to be drawn between Judaism and Christianity for the simple reason that the sage, the enlightened one, the seal of the prophets and the lawgiver are all human. This man's claim he is not human. He is the son of God. In other words, he is God. Boy. If you really are an inquirer, you get struck and say, man, that, that, that's not believable. He dresses like me, eats like me, runs to the carpenter shop every day just to make a living. He wants to claim to be the son of God. Heck, give me a break. You, son of God, what makes you think you're the son of God? Not believable. Think. It is not believable. If you're sitting in a well called Christianity, yes, it's very believable. But if you're an inquirer, that is not believable. But here's the dilemma. I can't believe it as an inquirer, nor can I toss it out because it is not a mythological story. Now can you see the importance of that first is it mythological or is it historical? If it was mythological, my friends, I would have tossed it out, wham! But it is not mythological, it is not legendary. So I'm stuck here. I cannot believe it, I can't toss it out. That's my dilemma. The only thing you can do is just be fair about it. Okay, let's look at both sides. He said he was the son of God, God. And hmm, maybe he's not. So now my question is, what kind of people who are not gods call themselves gods? Is that fair enough? What kind of people who claim to be gods, but they are really not gods, they are just humans? Four kinds of people, those who are mad, deluded, a complete liar, and this is not an ordinary liar, it would be an you know, incorrigible pathological liar, and number three, a megalomaniac or an egomaniac, and we have in history, those who were that, the Caesars of Rome and the pharaohs of Egypt call themselves gods. They're full of, you know, the ego, uh, egomaniac uh, uh, trend. And of course, truly God then. How do you decide about this? Well, let's see what happens if you ask what happened uh, when you look at all these four options. Was he mad? Deluded? There are some characteristics of a deluded individual. The words come out very quickly and they flit from one topic to another. You cannot follow them so easily. And uh, you can make out that there is a 
kind of an ethereal quality. This little uh, young lady is playing with something and you go and ask, who are you? <laughs> These little dolls you are playing with, oh, I'm the Queen of England. That's a deluded person. And so you look for those signs. Is the mind just wandering all over the place? And at every instance you are at the top? That's the deluded person. It's called delusions of grandeur. That's a real diagnosis that is made. So, what do some great thinkers say? Uh, before we go to that, this quote that I'm going to put up is an unusual quote because he was a world emperor. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general who conquered most of the Indian world and formed a world empire. When they asked him at his, in his exile, uh, consider that person 1800 years ago from a little village called Nazareth and from Galilee he used to go around preaching, I am emperor. You want me to compare to that little bitty guy there? They said, no. He said some things that are you know, unusual. And so he said, okay. So in his exile years, he studied the life of Christ and his teachings. This is what he said. Everything in Christ astonishes me. The nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand, of a grandeur which overpowers. Neither history, nor humanity, nor the ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or even explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Do you know why he said those words? Because he confessed that he had formed a world empire and he stated how he formed it. He said, I formed it through bloodshed, through deceit, through military genius, with a sword. That's how I formed my empire. This man, without picking up a single sword, formed an empire where people will die for him. Nobody's going to die for me. His words are different from every other I've seen on earth. That's why he said, his empire astonished me and astonishes me beyond words. They are read more, said Bernard Ram, the words of Jesus. Quoted more, loved more, believed more, translated more, because they are the greatest words ever spoken. And where is their greatness? Their greatness lies in the pure, lucid spirituality in dealing clearly, definitively and authoritatively with the greatest problems that throb in the human breast. I have not found a single scholar whoever said that he could be possibly crazy so that was out not crazy how about a liar or an imposter not likely why because of the sanhedrin trial now at that sanhedrin trial they asked the same question we are asking are you truly god tell us if you are the son of god jesus was a jew thorough bred jew he knew if he ever claimed to be the son of God, he was going straight to his death for blasphemy. He knew it. Now here's a judicial setting. If you were on trial for murder, say, and the punishment for murder was the electric chair or the gallows, then if you had some good solid evidence that would save you from the gallows, would you not bring it to the judge? to the court of law and say, here it is, man, I'm innocent. Suppose you knew you were guilty. 
And your attorney came and said, you are done for, buddy. But I can pull you out. I want you to just tell two lies at this point and at that point. Leave the rest to me. I will save you from the gallows. Now what will you do? Mm-hmm. If you're in your right mind, it would be a temptation. There's no question about it. Why should I go to the gallows? I can tell just two lies and escape it. That's if you're in your right mind. So if you're in your right mind, you will bring credible truth to save you from the gallows. You will also be tempted and might even bring falsehood to save you from the gallows. If you are in your right mind, you will never bring falsehood to take you to the gallows. Are you with me? You, if you are in your right mind, will not state a falsehood. Listen, I'm back, like me going back to my home and telling my family, I didn't murder the fellow, but the judge wants me to say, say that I did it. So yeah, tomorrow morning I'm going to say I did it and I'm going to die. <laughs> nice. We'll have a good party after that. Right? No. That doesn't make sense at all. This man, he was asked this question. He knew if he answered yes, he would go to his death. And he answered yes. This is the highest form of kind of an evidence that we have. Maybe he was not the son of God. But he fully, completely, in, with conviction, believed that he was the son of God. Enough to go to his death. I, you cannot call such a one a liar. You may say he was mistaken, but not a liar. A liar is a person who knows the truth and says something else. So he was not a liar. Was he a megalomaniac? No. In the East where I come from, yeah, you go for a visit to your, to your relatives, three villages away, and then you walk, walk all the way. The first thing they do when you come to the doorstep is get a pot of water and wash the feet. I tell you, it's very, very refreshing. Yes. I've had it done. So I know it's extremely refreshing. But who does it? It's the lowest one in the house. And if you have servants, then the servants will go and do that. If you have two sets of servants, one who cooks your food and the other who works in the garden, then the one who goes, works in the garden will go and do that, not the one who cooks your food. So it's the lowest who washes feet. There was a time when he and his disciples went to a place and it was time to wash the feet, but no servant to wash the feet. Everyone looked at each other. Who's going to do that job? That? Uh -uh, not me. This man stood up, took off his outer garments, wrapped his waist on a towel and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. No egomaniac has ever been known to do that. Yeah, the pharaohs of Egypt will ask you to polish their shoes. You polish their shoes. They will not polish yours. This man did it the opposite way. So honestly, I couldn't call him an egomaniac. Truly God? Possible. But once again, it's tough, right? If you're an inquirer, men not fitting in to any of the others, at the same time, God, I don't know. 
let me give him the best possible that as a human I can give. Maybe he was a great moral teacher. Maybe the best moral teacher. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about that. I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him and that is, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Why? Because he has told a lie. He would be either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Once a person says he is God, we either accept him or boot him out. Don't leave him in the middle. There is no op there's no other two options, friends. If he says he's God, or he's crazy, or he's a liar, or is an egomaniac, not worth your time, or it could be God. Can you see? You have to make a decision. Why is Christianity so weak? We have not made a decision yet. We still consider him a good teacher. God? You will fall at his feet if he is God. You have no other choice. Or boot him out. Um, Richard Dawkins, I know if you know, one of the most vocal atheists in the world today has written the book, The God Delusion. In that he says, well, there's one more option. He could have been honestly mistaken. So, let's uh, see whether that could possibly be. Practically, let me ask the ladies here. Do you think you might be Honestly mistaken that you're the Queen of England? I mean, just honestly mistaken. No? Oh, you guys, would you be honestly mistaken that uh, you came here not in your car but in a spaceship from Mars just now? Just honestly mistaken? No, my friends. You can be honestly mistaken as to where you left the keys or in a, about a face in a crowd. Yeah, you can be honestly mistaken, but you cannot be honestly mistaken as to whether you're the Queen of England or you came in a spaceship. You cannot be honestly mistaken as to whether or not you are God. No. So that's out. You don't have to swallow everything I say. I am presenting my personal search. But, when I'm presenting it like this, it's very common that you would have questions. So go ahead and write your questions down. We will have a Q&A period after the ending. Because there will be questions that you will have. There's no question. That's, it always is the case. Uh, so let's continue. Uh, for lack of time, I've, I've left off one question. 
and go on to the next one. The next question that we are going to deal with is this. Mr. Founder, your teachings were pretty impressive, all of you. What I would like to know is, how did your life compare with your own teachings? So I am not going to make the criteria of your life. Your own teachings will make the criteria for your own life. How did you fare? Is that reasonable? Yeah, you want to stand up in front and say, follow me, I will take you to the other land and expect me to hang my eternal destiny on you, then buddy, you better match up to something. So that's my question. Teaching versus the life of the founders. In Hinduism, when a man gives up all varieties of desire for sense gratification, then he is said to be in pure transcendental consciousness. A person who is not disturbed by the incessant flow of desires can alone achieve peace. These words, sense gratification and incessant flow of desires, can be many. But there is one thing that you will find if you read all religious literature. Sexual descriptions are very clear when it comes to the question of sensual desires. Okay? So we are not going to run away from it. Because that is what they said. The literature says it. When you keep away from that, then you can do transcendental meditation. That is how it said. Now Krishna, we are going to actually higher than a founder because Krishna is the eighth incarnate of the God of God Vishnu. So his is the most described life. So we will look at that. Ayana Gosha was married to Radha. Radha was one of the girl cow herds in the place called Vrindavana where Krishna grew up. Now when he grew up, there was hardly any guys around him. All of them were females. And he had his flute, you will see in the next slide. With the flute, he would play beautiful tunes, I mean lovely ones, and seduce all of them. That's the story. It's written down there. Nobody can controvert it. So when Ayana Gosha heard of Radha's adultery, what's he doing with, with Krishna? He went in, form of the cup, in search of the couple. However, Krishna assumed the form of a goddess, and they thereby escaped Ayana Gosha's wrath. What was Krishna doing? Fooling around with somebody else's wife. Number two, Gautama Buddha was one time a Hindu. This is what he said about the Hindu writings. He said, our holy books tell us of gods, sages and heroes who though high-minded were addicted to sensuous passions. So these are their writings. Krishna was supposed to have married 16,000 wives. And he was supposed to have fathered 180,000 sons. Now, we all say, wow, naturally, because that's unusual, right? But in, re in reference to the question of keeping away from anything sensual, there must not have been very much time for transcendental <laughs> meditation. <laughs> you know, I'm not joking in one sense, because if you ask any Hindu scholar, they get a little red-faced when you talk about Krishna's sexual exploits. One day he went to the river where the girls were all taking a bath and grabbed all their clothes and climbed up a tree. 
And he said, if you want your clothes, come one by one and get it from me. And this is written down there. So, they did not keep to their own teachings. The same thing with Buddhism. Here, venerable gentlemen, these are the words of Gautama Buddha himself, are the four rules about the offenses which deserve expulsion. Once again, to do with sex. If a monk should have sexual intercourse with anyone. Now, when he was born, the prophets came and told his father, who was a king, Sudhodana, his father, was a king. Siddhartha was his name, Gautama Buddha was a prince. And the prophet told his father, you have two choices. Your son will become either a great world emperor or he will run around the countryside half naked looking for truth. What do you want your son to be? So naturally the father said, what? I want my son to be a world emperor. So then the prophet made a stipulation. Okay, he will be a world emperor. But you must never let him set his eyes on old age, disease, suffering or death. Four things. If he sets his eyes on them, you will not be a world emperor. So the father said, fine. And he built special palaces, one here for the winter, one here for the autumn, one here for the summer. And he had them in stories and he placed his son Siddhartha always on the top floor. Never let him come down to the bottom floor or to the palace grounds or even to the town because he might see suffering and death. So how do you keep a young man out there? Their writings describe how they entertained him. They entertained him, women minstrels, with wanton swings, butterfly kisses, seductive glances. Thus he became a captive of these women who were well versed in the subject of sensuous enjoyment and indefatigable in sexual pleasure. On the night of the renunciation, he awoke to find the female musicians sleeping, some with their bodies wet with phlegm and some with their dresses fallen apart to disclose their nakedness. What was happening was a sexual orgy from the age 16 to the age 29 when he went out to look for truth on the countryside. 13 years every day, every week, month after month, year after year, that was his life. That's why when he was searching, this is what he said, in fulfillment of my vows, I have plucked out the hair of my head and the hair of my beard, have gone down to the water punctually thrice before nightfall to wash away what? Evil, Evil with him. Gautama, Buddha, good teachings, high ideals, but you, not sure. How about Islam? Then you may marry other women who seem good to you, two, three or four of them. This is the only chapter in the Quran which says how many you can marry. And even today, even in our land here, if you're a Muslim, you can have four wives. Four is the maximum. Because that's what the Quran says. It's a tenet of their belief. You can have one, two, three, four wives. Muhammad had eleven. Second statement there. We, Allah, have given you, Muhammad, a glorious victory so that Allah may forgive your past and your future. What? Look, I didn't call it sins. 
what the Quran calls sins were found in him and it needed forgiveness. Didn't keep, keep up to the ideal. Did he not, did Allah not find you in error and guide you, Muhammad? Again, the word error. Judaism. Here are the rules. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. How about these three greats of the, of the Jewish faith? Number one, Moses. So he looked this way and that way and when he saw no one, he killed him and hid him in the sand. What's that? Murder. And then Abraham, he went into Hagar and conceived. Hagar is not his wife, that's adultery. And then he goes and tells a foreign king that he is actually his sister. And the king had to tell him, hey, you're bluffing. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? So this towering patriarch also faltered and fell. How about David? Then David sent messenger and took her. Her meaning Bathsheba. Bathsheba was not his wife. That's adultery right there. Not only that, he plans to cover it up. How does he do it? So he set Uriah, the husband, in the forefront of the hottest battle and let him go there and die. And he signs the death to this instructions and sends it in the hand of Uriah. You take, carry your own death warrant, go. This is cold-blooded, premeditated murder. There's nothing else. None of the three Hebrew greats were able to keep their position. Neither Abraham, nor Moses, nor David. None. Until you come to this man, Christianity. I found 12 statements. Let's look at all 12 of them. They're in the writings. Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor. Now Romans were not friendly with Jews. Any chance to chop down a Jew, they would take it. But look at what he said. And indeed having examined him in your presence, Jews, I have found no fault in this man. In, in the book of John he said, I have found no fault in him at all. And then he says the same thing about Herod. Herod also did not find fault. So Pilate, Herod didn't find fault. Pilate's wife writes a note to him during the trial and says, Watch it. I had a dream about this man whom you are trying right now. Watch. Don't do anything. He is a just man. Number four, the Roman centurion at the crucifixion. When everything happened and he realized that this, this person looked different from all the others. And the natural calamities that happened at that moment of his death, he said, certainly this was a righteous man. How about the thief on the cross on one side? He turned to the one on the other side and he said, hey buddy, you and I are dying for our sins. This man has done nothing wrong. These five looked at him from a great distance away. They were not his close friends. How about somebody who was really close, like John? John observed him from morning till night, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for three and a half continuous years, watching every detail of his life and in the end he said, man in this, in him, there is no sin. Peter, same thing, Christ, without blemish, without spot. Paul, he was in all points tempted as we are and yet without sin. Now we come to a, a peculiar one, the Quran. 
Do you know that the Quran mentions Jesus in the Quran in 93 verses? In 16 of them he is identified Yeshua bin Maryam, Jesus the son of Mary, not just any Jesus. 11 of those verses he is identified as the Messiah in the Quran. He, it says in chapter 3 and verse 46, He, Jesus, shall preach to men in the prime of manhood and shall lead a righteous life. Jesus is the only founder who is mentioned in a book of another major religion and stated that he was good. Disloyal disciple, Judas, I am the nut. He was innocent. Clear, unequivocal statement. Then comes the number 11. This is peculiar also. You know, you and I, let's be honest, look into your life and see how you will stand in scrutinizing your own life. It's finished before you even start. There's not a ghost of a chance anyone can face your own record and say, it's fine. It's a clean record. So look into our own conscience. It's absolutely unusual to find somebody who looks into his own conscience and not only own conscience, he looks at his most avowed enemies who are thirsting for his death and he says, can you point out any sin in me? And what's the answer? Silence. You know, if you look through history, and now this is not just through religious history, you look through history, you will not find one instance in which you could establish this as the truth. Except here. That a man would stand in front of his most avowed enemies and ask them, can you point one mistake in me? And they say, ooh, step back. Compare that with Kung Xu. Kung Xu is his Chinese name. His western name is Confucius, the founder of Confucianism. He says, how dare I claim to be a sage or a benevolent man? I cannot even start that. But this man says, look into my life. I can look into my own conscience. It's absolutely clear. And then number 12, the Sanhedrin's question again. Are you then the son of God? This is peculiar to me as I was studying this out. You know, the Jews, the Sanhedrin met at three levels. Uh, they were not only the religious leaders, they were also the judicial body. They could take judicial action. They were judges, all the members of the Sanhedrin. If it is a small little bitty thing that you, you know, you took my stuff that I left lying down, it's mine and the other person is mine. Okay, we go to the Sanhedrin. Three members of the Sanhedrin would be enough to form the quorum for an ordinary deed. When it comes to a little major deed, real major, then you need a quorum of 23. You need 23 judges to decide on it. When it's of national importance, then it's what's called the full council. The full council is 70 members plus one, the chief priest. There is one record in which it was called the full council, but we cannot establish it. But we do know there were multiple members of Sanhedrin, not just one or two. Definitely more than 23. 
the highest bench we have today in the Supreme Court of the United States is nine judge bench. That's the highest. Here's a 20, minimum of a 23 judge bench. 23 judges looking at this one man, open trial, bring in the witnesses, bring in the evidence, we want to convict this man. They bring in evidence after evidence and one witness after another, they can't convict him. Then the priest, against the law of the land, because a judge is not supposed to be a prosecuting attorney, but he steps down from the prosecuting attorney and faces him and changes the whole question. It is no longer what you did or what you did not do. Who are you? Can you see that? Who are you was of necessity to that chief priest because he wanted to put him to death and he could not put him to death by anything that he had ever done or not done. They had brought every evidence in the land and they did not find anything wrong with he, with that he had ever done in his entire life. That to me is the judicial testimony of this man. Number 12 in our list. Why did the chief priest change the, the, the question from what did you do or what did you not do to who are you? Because they could not find anything wrong in what he had done. And this is the one time in judicial history where the death sentence was handed down, not for what you did or did not do, but for who you were. Twelve statements, my friend. Look at the spectrum. Enemies, friends, aliens and your countrymen. You can't say there was a bias here. This is the one place where we will have to agree. 15 million minutes of life on this earth in the midst of a wicked and corrupt generation. Every thought, every deed, every purpose, every work, privately and publicly, from the time he opened his baby eyes until he expired on the cross, were all approved of God. Never once did our Lord have to confess any sin, for he had no sin. Finally, in my search, I find one in whom the theory has met its match in the practice. One individual in whom the tenets of belief have been played out to the maximum in real life. Therefore, as an inquirer, I had to agree that here was the only life lived to an unblemished perfection. Therefore, he is the only one of the founders who could turn to you and to me with perfect credibility and perfect right, tell you and me, follow me. Nobody else has that authority. For if you had followed anyone else, you would have still made a mistake. Him and him alone if you follow. You can make it clean to the other side without a whoops of a mistake. Because that was his record. The only such record from the dawn of history till today. Let's take another break. 
we've done two now, two things. The book, historical, and the only book that throws out a challenge saying, test me out. Pretty impressive. And then we look at the man, he makes the highest claim, God. And then not only he makes the highest claim, he lives in a, such a life that you can't find a fault in him. Could it really be then that he came from that realm bearing the message in himself? Is it possible? Aha! Uh -huh. It makes good sense. So now, my dilemma. Now I was a seeker, an inquirer. I know I have confirmation bias. We said that last night. Remember what confirmation bias is? You want to have your beliefs sustained and established, so you look at all the evidence and, and, and make your belief out in front. Was I doing that? That was a troubling question to me. Was I making the New Testament, you know, little way out in front? Was I making this man Jesus way out in front? Because I wanted it to be in front. Possible. So then I said, no, it won't be right for me to continue this way. I'm going to purposely look for points in which he does not come out first. Can you see what I was doing? I'm trying to be fair. I'm trying to find out whether I am being fair to myself. Am I pushing these people, the book and the man up or not? I want to check myself. So now I'm going to look for some things that he does not come out first. The next three, we may not go to all three, but we'll do at least one or two. He does not come out first. But lo and behold, he comes out last. Let's take a five minute break and come back. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.